Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Six years ago, I met Angelica Malone, and I'm pretty sure I came across her profile on Instagram. I reached out to her, and not only did we connect, but she wrote about her discovery and reflections of being a third culture kid. See, Angelica grew up in a military family. She joined the armed forces herself and would marry her husband, who was serving as well. That story you'll hear in great detail shortly. But understand that moving frequently has been a constant in her life. Currently, she's raising two bilingual TCKs with her husband, Brett, and her upbringing has deeply influenced her philosophy on family, work, and parenting. Her passion for birth work began in 2010 while serving as a mentor in New York to pregnant refugee women. This would eventually lead her to becoming a certified professional midwife, clinical herbalist, and a certified lactation educator counselor. In this episode, you'll hear about the various postings around the world that the mobile life has taken her and her family. And you'll also hear why she launched Soul Midwifery and Wellness, a home birth, lactation, and botanical medicine practice that serves women in her adopted home of Puerto Rico. As I mentioned before, I met Angelica when she was very early in this new professional and quite honestly, personal endeavor. And it's absolutely fabulous just to see how far she's come. Welcome to the Global Chatter. Periodically, when I do this show, I like to bring on people who have been part of the Black expat story for a while. And as you heard from the introduction, Angelica, I mean, she wrote a piece for us. I, I can't even remember. Was it 2016, 2017? I, I feel like latest 2018, which <laughs> feels like 40 years ago in COVID era. Um, and so, you know, and and even with the with the article she wrote about her experiences um, living abroad and and how that shaped her career. She, for a few seasons, at least with us, you know, talked about parenting and raising some, you know, raising TCKs abroad and whatnot. And so I am happy to have her on and her perspective, because if for nothing else, I'm catching up and the rest of you get to listen in. So how are you today? (laughs) I'm good, Amanda. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, first of all, I'm envious because I know you're in Puerto Rico and it's warm. And meanwhile, meanwhile, okay, so... Let's talk about North Carolina for a moment. Nobody okay. cares, but they're going to hear it anyway. <laughs> um, it was huh, Saturday was 70 degrees, mm-hmm. but it was mad humid. And if, you know, at the time of this recording, if anyone's following those devastating tornadoes that went through the central part of the country, I think we got the back end of that. Mm-hmm. And so I stepped outside and thought to myself, 
this feels amazing. It's hot and it's humid. I love this. Also, it's December. <laughs> and then and then I think we had a I think we had like a 30, 40 degree drop. And that's what annoys me because I don't like cold weather, but I would rather it just stay cold instead of it be <laughs> instead of it going up, down, up, up down. down. Yes. You can't prepare yourself when it's like that. And I think you get sick, to be honest. Like, I don't know about you. No, but don't, I mean, it's going up and because you don't know, do I need to have the heat on? Do I need to have shorts on? Mm -hmm. And, and here's the thing. It was, so it was 70. It has dropped to like, I don't, below today was like 31. Oh no. No, no. But but at the end of the week, it's going to be like 73. (laughs) North Carolina, stop playing. I, it's America. Well, I don't know. Do Northern parts of the country, are they just staying cold or I don't, I never live where it's cold. Neither. I think they usually just stay cold. I've lived in New York a few times, and usually, like once it gets cold, it stays cold. But usually, in the fall, is where you see that back and forth. Where like during the day, it's really nice, and in the late night or early morning, it's really, really. Yeah, in the the, uh, early morning, it's real cold, stuff like that. So I think that's a really good segue because I realize, as much as I've, and as long as I've known you, I actually don't know what state you kind of sort of close. I mean, you were TCK, but who do you where do you call home like where did you grow up as a kid mm-hmm. okay so this is a great question because I get this often and I always just have to say I don't have a hometown but I am now calling Isabella my hometown Isabella Puerto Rico um growing up I literally moved every two to four years my entire life from the moment I was born essentially until now I'm 35 years old so I've never had any place to call home funny enough I have lived on Guam twice <laughs> I'm Which, not, I'm not, you know, I'm an island girl, but I'm not, you know, of the Chamorro culture or anything like that. And so I don't have a hometown. Like I call wherever I am home. You know, and I think most Americans cannot say they've lived on Guam. Twice. I don't even think they can say they've been to Guam. Like, to Guam be honest, or see it on the map. Or or, right. That's map. what I was going to say. Or find it on the map. Let's just be honest. They'd be like, wait, those are Americans. Um, okay. So then the question always comes for all good third culture kids. Why is it that you grew up moving around? <laughs> okay. I want to say one thing before we go back or before we go on. I am so thankful for you offering me the opportunity years ago to write for the Black Expat. Um, it was around a time when I was really just kind of starting to step out there and blog and write and talk about parenting and stuff like that. And writing for you really required me to take a moment to mm. step back, take a look at my life and then articulate it. And I had never done that before. And it was, I think, even around the time where I was realizing I was a TCK. You know, obviously, I mm. think the TCK acronym has been out there for a long time, but only in the last, you know, eight years or so has it become really popular where people can identify themselves as a TCK and then explain it to other people. And when I wrote for you, it was really like opening a window. And I was like, ah, I see myself and I can understand. And now I can explain myself to other people in a way that I don't think I had really kind of had a chance to process and think about before then. So oh my I'm excited to be here with you again. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, oh, I love it. I love it. I'm glad that we were helpful because I, you know, what's funny about you saying that is that I've had people on the show who I can see very clearly they were a third culture kid. But the term was not necessarily used when they were growing up. And I, let's be honest, I, I'm going to kind of date some of us, but I think <laughs> I, I was definitely, and I'm a couple of years older than you, I was definitely in the group where we st- 
start, like we were very early starting to hear about it. I went to international schools. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's not something that necessarily stuck with us until we got older. So I can imagine like when I see kids who graduate from high school in the last 10 years, for example, Mm -hmm. they know because I think it's more amplified, especially if they went to international schools and especially Mm -hmm. if they're in kind of that international setting, like, Yes. And it's hard, like if you're in the U.S., you know, like there are plenty of kids that are third culture kids in the U.S. Yes. But because we don't use it, we're just like, <laughs> we're such a melting pot anyway. We're just like, mm-hmm. oh, you're from somewhere else. Whereas if you go to other countries, as you know. And so I think that and I think particularly to the type of TCK you were. Mm-hmm. So I know with military kids, they're used they're used to saying, OK, we were just military brats. Exactly. Right? And, and that was it. Yeah. And that's I feel like just not really a great uh description because there's so many more layers to that right like being a black person in the military or of some maybe your family is not actually of american nationality there are people yeah. in the united states military who are not american yeah. nationals and so there are so many more layers and i think the tck um acronym or that term is a better way of helping someone to realize it's really just my family is of one culture i am of a separate culture and i might be living in another culture and that is like oh that yeah. encompasses much more. And I think it's, I, I see the term as being far more inclusive, as I think you would say, um, compared to some other terms, just because you're right. I think you gave the most simple definition because sometimes we add all these other things. I'm like, literally, family group of one culture, parents group of one culture, you grew up in a different culture. Maybe, maybe even within your family, you're trying to bring in a, a whole other culture given exactly. on, on where you were. So were, was your family part of the military? Yes. So both of my parents, both my biological parents, my mom and my dad were in the military, my mom in the Navy, my dad in the Marines. And then my parents divorced when I was older. And my stepdad was also in the, the Navy. Yes. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> my family has a very long, history long history in the military. In the military. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uncles, grandparents. Um, yeah. Everyone. Siblings. I guess for either your father or your mother, your biological parents starting, where would be home for them? Or was it they also grew up moving around? So it's that was different. No, they didn't really grow up moving around. So my mom is from Delaware and my dad is from Memphis or the Tennessee area, but has lived pretty much most of his life in Philly. And so really, honestly, when I think about where my family from the U.S. is from, like, you know, where they, it's the Northeast, it's the Philly, Delaware, like Wilmington area. Gotcha. And then, so as a kid where you, okay, your parents were together at least when you were younger. So where mm-hmm. are some of the places that you guys ended up living in? Yeah. So I was born in Southern California in Oceanside, California. It's a pretty military area. Um, and just a few months after I was born, we moved to Guam. And mm-hmm. one of my very first memories, honestly, I was only there for a few years, but I have this one kind of like hazy memory of being nestled in like this little cove of a beach sitting oh. on like sitting in the sand and maybe somebody had left me there like while they're in the water or something. I, I mean, not, I mean, like you're fine. I mean, you're, me. yeah, I mean, you're fine. I'm talking to you, but yes. <laughs> like they had maybe set me there. I wasn't able to walk or I was newly walking and I was just sitting there. And I remember that. And that was really the first, my first memory is being on Guam or being in this like beachside, you know, ocean island life community. Um, I remember vaguely like being stung by a jellyfish. And so we lived mm-hmm. on Guam for a few years with my mom and my dad. It was just me at the time. And then we moved back to the States. We moved to New Orleans. And that's where my sisters were born. Um, And I have really, really wonderful memories of New Orleans. Um, I remember just getting bags and bags of crawfish and shrimp and um, Mardi Gras, celebrating Mardi Gras. Like Mm -hmm. they had kids events for Mardi Gras and eating king cake and getting the king cake baby. And 
going to the French Quarter and getting brass bangles, you know, from the sellers and things like that. So really, uh, that kind of Cajun Creole experience. And so we lived there. And then we moved back up north to the northeast where my mom's family was from. We lived in Philly. And I remember being in Philly, going to school in the city. Um, you know, one of those regular old like PS whatever mm-hmm. is, you know, brick building and um, being there for a little bit. And then kind of for a couple of years, maybe two years in there, going between Philly and Delaware, mm. where my, my grandmother lived. My grandmother lived in Wilmington. And I remember just uh, like being out on her front stoop and going to the corner store and hanging out with my cousins who lived there and, you know, doing sleepovers and playing kickball mm-hmm. um, in the Northeast. And then around the time that I was like nine or 10 years old, my, my mom was divorced and remarried. And that's when we moved overseas. We moved mm-hmm. to Japan first. And that's really where I feel like I have the most like rich memories, like kind of coming up and seeing the trajectory of my life kind of um, unfolding and how influential being a TCK was. So we lived in Yokosuka, Japan, but my parents always lived out in the community. I think okay. there's a small bit of time where we lived on the base, but my mom, though she grew up in this one area of Delaware, Wilmington, and she wasn't really well-traveled, there was something in her that really found it important to immerse her children in the culture and in the community that they were living in and to not be afraid. And so we lived in a Japanese home. I remember having to get the kerosene to light the kerosene heaters and, you know, having a tatami mat floor in some of the rooms and not being able to wear your shoes and going and eating takoyaki at the mall and going to these places and, you know, eating sushi on this, you know, on these little Mm -hmm. sushi bars on the street and stuff like that. And I remember my mom let me at one point in time stay over at a friend of hers home who was Japanese and going to like a festival in her community and stuff. And so that was like the beginning of my cross-cultural experiences and just being shown that you can be different and you can live in this different community, but it's really going to be much more exciting and rich if you jump in and just start experiencing things. And you're going to find people who are excited to meet you. You know, Japan Mm -hmm. was very welcoming. You know, it's a more reserved culture, but I never felt even as a child that I wasn't welcome or that um, people didn't want to share their, their life and their culture with me. I felt very immersed and able to experience all this richness. And so we lived in Japan throughout my middle school years. And then we moved back to the States and we lived actually outside of Memphis for a little bit. Mm. And that honestly was the first time where I kind of felt culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't from the South. My family is from the Northeast, if anything. So mm-hmm. I didn't say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, or any of that kind of stuff. There was like a style of dress that I'd never seen before. You know, Japanese young style is very different than what, yeah. you know, people were wearing in the South at the time, um, especially kids in like middle school, early high school. And I didn't talk like any of the kids at my school, you know, so people were very like curious where I'd come from and, you know, what my experiences had been and more curious and like, not that they would ask, it was just more like looking. People were not as open to building friendships. And I don't think it was a harsh or or a mean thing. I think people just didn't know how to engage with somebody who seemed like very different. Yeah. So I had a couple of good friends, but even still within those friendships, none of the people that I was in school with at that time had lived even outside of, I think, the, I think one of my friends had lived in Alaska. Um, But other than that, most of them had all lived in that same town. So that was a really difficult time for me. 
in finding my space, but it Mm -hmm. also allowed me to really realize I'm different and that's okay. I'm just going to be different. And it was such a good lesson to learn at such a young age that you will be different at times. And there's nothing wrong with being different. You just need to figure out how to navigate this space and do what you want to do and um, get along and not get along and like make people feel comfortable, but get along. Like if you need to do this task, figure out how to do the task. Um, If you want to go to this thing, figure out how to go and do this thing. And it was funny that I was feeling that way in the United States, right? Like I didn't say I felt like that in Japan. Japan. (laughs) Yeah. And I I, kind of want to touch on that because um, I think when we talk about moving and crossing borders, there's always this excitement about what it's like, especially as you use a Black person being received in another country. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we focus on repatriation or re-entry coming back into the country at least and this is actually for anyone that is the passport that you hold mm-hmm. I can imagine and and I I have not interestingly enough I have not I've been to Memphis I have not been to New Orleans so I but I've heard about it I would imagine though stepping back into Tennessee <laughs> but you know you might as well have been like you had two heads in the sense that you were in Japan and if you've only lived in the Memphis or greatest greater Memphis area your whole life <laughs> Yeah, and then you're like you're a black girl who lived in Japan. <laughs> yes, I, I know. Sure. I was an alien to them. <laughs> Literally, I was an alien. I wonder if people are like, uh, but, you know, well, why were you? Well, obviously, the first question is why were you there? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if they if they guess correctly. I I have this conversation sometimes when people ask, well, you know, different black folks why they lived abroad, and they assume it's the military. Yes. In your case, it was, but in a lot of other black people, it's not. They just for whatever reason. But how? I mean, you were talking about culture shock as a middle schooler. Mm-hmm. What were the things that just kind of jumped out to you that you may remember that was different? The courtesies, like saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Yeah. That was probably less about cross, like being outside the U.S. and now coming back. That was a South thing versus like a North thing. Nobody says yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, at least. <laughs> and I only live in the South. So I'm like, we say this all the time. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> No, and they, yes, and it right. was like a big deal. Like it was disrespectful to not say right. it. And I'm just like, I'm not saying yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, that was something um, they, I mean, at that time they paddled in school and I had never heard of that. I was like, oh, oh yeah. my gosh, what barbarians are these? Like, man, I haven't thought about paddling in a minute. I mean, I don't think they do it. They definitely don't do it anywhere. I remember when I was in elementary school, I'm in North Carolina now, in North mm-hmm. Carolina, there was a paddle. I, I remember yes. that like second grade. I, they don't do I remember that. the first time I heard the word paddling. I'm like, what's, what's paddling? It's crazy to think about that. that, that if that anyone doesn't thing. know, that is spanking at school with a with wooden a, board. With, with a wooden board. Now I, I remember, I know the elementary school is not that far from me. I didn't get paddled, but you could get paddled. There's no way in 2021, 2022, you that don't paddle somebody's child. No, no. Oh my God. And my mom, so, so it was funny because not only now that I think about it, it wasn't just, you know, me being a third culture kid now living or expat living now in the mainland United States. It was also a kid who came from parents who were from the North now living in the very deep South where there was a lot of cultural norms that I didn't even know about, like paddling and saying, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. There was actually really like a fighting culture in the school. Like kids fought nobody <laughs> fought in Japan in school. Yes. Like nobody fought, nobody yelled. And I just found that very like shocking. And it was very like, that has, 
that has not gone away because my, oh my, my nephew graduated like two years ago. And I re- this this bodes this does not bode well at all talking about American schools. I, but like I remember he was like, Yeah, we got out early. And I'm like, what happened? He's like, Man, there was a brawl in the cafeteria, just cleared the room. And I was like, Is everybody okay? He's like, Yeah. I mean, the police showed up. I was like, All right, well, yes. <laughs> Girl, that was the kind of stuff I was like, I am not from this same world. I don't understand this. Right. And then they were looking at me like I was crazy. So, you know, and I didn't speak like them just in general. Like people yeah. said, I talked white and but then the white girls didn't understand me because honestly, I talked more, I guess, white than the white girls. Because the they white had, girls like, very strong Southern accents. I mean, it was just literally I was an alien. I sometimes think people say talk white when they don't know how to describe the accent. It's like, you don't sound like, I'll say this specifically with Black folks, you don't sound like the Black people that are around me. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, even y'all as Black folks don't sound like the Black people across the country. So, no. I, but, uh, you know, and people think it's proper or whatever, but but I think it's just people use that term to say you don't sound like me, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily a racial thing. It's, it's just... Yes. <laughs> it's it's where you it's where you grew up. like it's the cultures around where you grew up right everybody sounds the way I sound from where I where I was mm-hmm. so so did you 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 were in Memphis did you graduate from high school in Tennessee no no so I lived there just for like a year and a half two years honestly okay. um and then we moved to Italy and that's where I finished <laughs> okay <laughs> save the day you went to Italy I love Italy honestly oh my goodness I love Italy too I can't my husband really wants to go and we haven't had a chance to go but it's beautiful it's lovely I lived in Naples and many people had derogatory things to say about Naples but I thought it was wonderful Italy's just fascinating I mean it I so Naples is up north right it's more like in the not north north but it's like more I think middle I'm gonna I want to find it so I'm not saying it wrong but it's not in the north north because I think Milan I, and Genoa. Well, okay, like yeah. Mil- I'm thinking like Milan, Venice are probably more north, right? Does that sound right? Milan no. is definitely Milan north. for sure. Okay. I, I need to look at a map for Venice. I haven't been, I have not been to Naples. I haven't been to the more northern part. I had an opportunity to be in the more Florence, Umbria region. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Like <laughs> Florence is my favorite place in Italy. One day I will just do a slideshow of all that. Like I went to Assisi. I went to like all these places. And and I thought, you know, when you think of some rom-com movie that's filmed in Italy. Yes. It's, it's Florence. Florence. And I'm like, like there was a there was a point where we were on a <laughs> we were on a bike ride through a vineyard <laughs> and I almost started singing the song from the sound of music because it looked just like it was me like seven we were like running and I, I was just like we were on these bikes and it was gorgeous and I was just like this is like <laughs> we need to be in a musical and I'm like riding along I hadn't been on a bike in like eight years <laughs> I'm like riding along and thinking to myself this is we're like Julie Andrews and the Von Trapp children, except that, of course, was not Italy. But it was still the same vibe. It's so gorgeous. Like, man, I almost didn't want to leave. And then I was like, well, I need to make money and it won't be here. <laughs> so I need to go. But so you graduated from high school in Italy. I did. I lived in Italy for almost four years. I was going to say, was that an easier transition than going from Tennessee to Italy? Or was it still was it still was there a shock there? Or was it a little bit difficult? Was it easier going to Italy than it was going to Tennessee? Yeah. Yes. I don't <laughs> even remember that transition, really. Like it was, I mean, I do remember the transition, but 
No, I didn't feel that culture shock. And the thing is, I reflect back on it. I went to a DOD school that was completely yeah. international. So we had NATO students, we had government or um, what's it called? Like embassy yeah, children state, and people state like department. That. All of those kids yeah. went there in addition to the military students. So I had, I mean, friends who were, you know, had a Spanish mom and a Jamaican dad or a Romanian family and like Polish kids. Like it was so diverse, Filipino children. Like it was just, and I think one, because they all had come from these diverse backgrounds and cultures, not everyone, obviously. Yeah. They were used to people being what I would say, quote, different. Yeah. that And that didn't mean anything to them because everyone was different than them. Like if your mom is from Spain and your dad's from Jamaica, like yeah. you don't, you're not really thinking everyone needs to be a certain way, right? Your family right. is already in itself a very diverse family. And so when you meet other people who don't come from necessarily, it's very unlikely you're going to meet someone who's just like you anyway. So when yeah. you meet someone who's different, it's just like, ah, of course. It's pretty and normal. to be completely honest, I remember people asking me like about my heritage and about me. I'm like, I'm just black American. And it was like <laughs> basic. That was basic. Being black <laughs> like, really, you're just basic. You yeah. is it, at least is half the black from like, so, like Caribbean and the other black is from, no, they're, no, they're black and they're American. Black American. <laughs> so sad. I just remember being like, well, I just came from being a straight up alien. Now I'm just as basic as they come. As we can be, right. <laughs> well, and that's what's really interesting, I think, about international schools and those type of schools is that I think you see so many representations and, 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 and cultural representations and permutations that, yeah, everyone's weird in their own way. So no one's weird. No, exactly. Exactly. And they were welcoming. I've realized an ex something I've really come to value, not just then, but in later in life is expat communities are so welcoming, so yeah. open-handed, very willing to make friends in an instant, you know, send you a text. Hey, we're going to this market next week. Do you want to go? This is yeah. how you do it. Like you need to get this ticket or blah, 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 or I'll take you to go get this or I'll get this for you. Or, you know, there's no building up for the friendship. There's the friendship is just like immediate, you know, right. especially <laughs> if they see something that they identify with, right. You know, maybe maybe you do have dark skin or maybe you have kids or maybe you um, have a spouse in the military or maybe you speak Spanish or something that they yeah. just like, yeah, that's good enough. Let's, let's move forward with the friendship. And I think part of it is too, is because there's so much change, right? Because people are constantly coming and going. So I think that if you grew up in the same town, which I think is a little bit difficult for folks to understand if they don't grow up in expat spaces, mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's a point of the year where there's always a bunch of people leaving exactly, and a bunch yeah. of people coming in. Yeah. And so you're constantly in this cycle of people are coming, people are going. And so if you want to kind of form those relationships, you don't get the, well, we'll probably be in this town for the next 30 years. It may exactly. be for the next two years, four years, if you're lucky, exactly. right? Yes. Unless you are indigenously or permanently in that country for whatever reason. Yes. So you... I mean, obviously, so you, you went to international schools in Italy or you went to the DOD school. Now, I know that you eventually joined the military or the service yourself. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. What branch did you serve? The Coast Guard. Yeah. The Coast Guard. <laughs> I, when you mentioned something, I, I, I really am thankful for the Coast Guard. It was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. But you mentioned something about traveling and changing towns in the U.S. And that was actually my husband's experience. My mm. husband is a white guy from the South but moved throughout the South because his dad was in the, the military and he had the hardest time. You aren't going to get away from this military story. <laughs> so, okay, where, where in the South is he from or where's his family? Or I, I'm putting quotes. Yeah, his, yeah, no, his family is from, from. 
from Wichita Falls, Texas, nor- a northern part of Texas, right near the Oklahoma huh, border. Yeah. <laughs> and he lived in North Carolina, Alabama, the Pan- or Panama City Beach, Florida, North Carolina. Like, yeah, I mean, because we, we, we have a ton of bases here. <laughs> so we have a ton of bases. Yeah. Oh, so you know what? I am really interested then that from just from what you know, what were his challenges? Because you're right. He's a white dude from the South, right? Mm-hmm. But but he's he's constantly moving. So what are what are the challenges that maybe you guys have talked about? Or maybe some of the things that he saw that was like, this is just really hard. Well, one, he wasn't, his family is from Wichita Falls, Texas, which is more like, I think, like rodeo type of thing. And other parts of Texas are more like hunting and things like that. And he never knew those things. I mean, he didn't know rodeo or anything like that either. Yeah. For other reasons, like familial reasons, but he never was a part of really the culture of uh, the South. He lived constantly kind of in these military environments. And so Mm. he never lived somewhere long enough to really, I guess... Kind of get do it, yeah immerse so his culture is not really southern he's he's more i guess like a military child or even a third culture kid in that some aspects yeah. his mom didn't grow up moving around she lived in wichita falls her whole life mm. uh, until she got married so that it was very difficult to make friends it was very difficult mm-hmm. to um to relate funny enough like he played sports he played football and did wrestling and so he did make a lot of close friendships with you know, guys sports. on sports teams. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of friends who are black. And so he felt like in that circle, he felt more um, like he had a place, but yeah. obviously if you move every few years, you have a new team, new teammates. And so you're trying to rebuild those friendships again. And yeah. when it came to their families, he didn't really relate always to the families either. So. And I think that's a really good point because I think for him, probably those shared interests is what makes it easy to to connect with a teammate, right? Exactly, because you both, yeah. which is like anything else is we have, we're, we're in affinity groups, but I, I don't think we, we think about as much when we do the intersection of even just moving within the U.S. And even if you are in supposedly like kind of the dominant majority, as far as race is concerned, you can still not feel like, and I've certainly talked to folks where we moved around so much, which is where we were. I didn't feel like I was part of yes. <laughs> whatever. You're yeah. so right. A good friend of mine who recently actually passed, a white woman, grew up on Guam her whole life. Yeah. And always was picked on her whole entire life and never felt a part really of like the Chamorro culture. And she always felt like, man, I don't know if I've ever heard people kind of vocalize that yeah. and, you know, say that even though I might be of a, you know, the majority race, not on Guam, on Guam, yeah. I am the. I am a minority and my culture is not the one that is idealized or, you know, infantilized or something like that. So yeah, you make a really good point. Yeah. So I guess then that brings a question. You were in the Coast Guard. Did you guys meet in the Coast Guard? We did. So I joined the Coast Guard at 70. So I graduated high school in Italy. We moved back. I was in Virginia for one month. That's where my mom decided to retire. All roads lead to Virginia. Anyway, carry on. with my sister recently all roads well you know what it is it makes sense though i think if you where did we're in virginia did did your northern virginia no that's it totally makes sense though because of that right because the dmv no i understand without any rationale because my family lives in virginia because usually that's where it's going to be virginia or north carolina for 
job, employment, consulting, all of those reasons, so, especially yeah. when you when you leave the military. But yeah. or even stay this in. is like 20 years ago and it was still oh, being totally. developed at that time. Like people were buying new houses and things. I mean, people are still doing that, right? But yeah, but now no one can afford them. But yes. Exactly, right? <laughs> oh. Yeah. So yeah, so I graduated in high school in Italy at 17. I moved back to the US and I always knew I wanted to work in healthcare. I've loved healthcare. Mm. Um, my parents weren't willing to pay for college, which was totally fine with me. I wanted experience. And my stepdad had spent some time with people in the Coast Guard and said that it was a good, good service, a better quality of life than some of the others, really small. And I would agree. And I think because the Coast Guard is so small, it gave me opportunities to really shine, honestly, yeah. to give it gave me opportunities to be challenged and to um, show that I could achieve highly. And I had a really, really awesome time in the Coast Guard. I had some pretty good success. Um, so when we moved back to the States, I lived in Virginia for one month and then I went off to boot camp. And so mm-hmm. I did boot camp. And my first unit after boot camp was um, New York. I lived on Staten Island. And <laughs> New York City is, I don't know, I loved it. It was one of the best places I think to live as a new, new person out on their own. All right. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a break and then we're going to come back. We're going to pick up in terms of career, family, and how I guess all of these sort of tie together with the work that you're doing, particularly with new mothers. So join us after the break. Expat Career Coaching is an excellent way to effectively strategize and plan for transitioning your higher education career expertise abroad. If you are a higher ed professional looking to do this, you should work with Rose Apple Global. Carla Fraser, who's the brain behind the brand, is a seasoned higher education pro extraordinaire who has worked around the world and knows what it takes to help her clients find the right international career pathways. After working with Carla, you will be equipped for your upcoming transition and future job searches in the international higher education market. So if you're a higher ed professional who needs expat coaching, connect with Rose Apple Global at roseappleglobal.com. And here's the best part. You can get 10% off an individual coaching service if you book by March 31st. Just mention the Global Chatter Podcast sent you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Okay, so as we were talking right before the break, you were mentioning um, you'd, you'd entered the Coast Guard, you were, <laughs> you were in New York, and I think we were getting to where you met your husband. And so there's a lot going on. There's a lot that happens in this period. So yes. kind of set the scene for us. Yeah. So I'm 17 years old, or maybe I was 18 by the time. 
no, I was 17. I moved to New York. I lived on Staten Island. Um, wow. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a driver's license. I don't know who else could identify with that. Same. Me. I didn't People get one until like crazy. my mid-20s. They they <laughs> but you were but you were at least in New York, though. I was in the South. I, know, right? I really needed a car. <laughs> I, just, I just didn't have one. <laughs> it was a, Sorry. it was such a good, like, I don't know, stroke of luck or whatever to be in New York. Because, yeah, I didn't have a car. And you most definitely need a, a car in most places, right? Like, it's not, they're not yeah. all metro, metropolitan or, like, walkable. But I live very close to the place that I work. And that's how I would walk to work or I'd get a ride from somebody who I worked with. Um, and I pretty much worked on the water there on Staten Island, uh, the Coast Guard. We did, like, search and rescue and things like that. And I loved it. It was amazing. Being in New York mm-hmm. as an 18-year-old woman was like just everything. My, I went mm-hmm. everywhere. I would literally just take the Staten Island Ferry into the city on a day and just walk the city. Um, Union Square was my favorite place, going to the markets there, um, just trying out the restaurants. It was fun. Like it was yeah. so awesome. I, I don't even know how to describe it. I still have such a deep affection to New York. I see the subway pictures of the subway system. And I just remember being 18 and taking the subway. I had a boyfriend on Long Island I would go out to see and it was just (laughs) by the way is that the chicken yes sorry is that the chicken that's crap we were (laughs) we were talking offline about how you will always hear what's going on in the background in some of these interviews because you are aware where there is there are roosters and chickens and everything walking about so it is what Uh I think there's a little reggaeton a little bit ago so (laughs) oh gosh and so, okay, so you're you're living in New York. At at what point? I, I guess I have two follow up questions. At what point did you meet up with your husband? And I know we were talking off air about some of the training you were taking in the Coast Guard, which all of this kind of leads to where you definitely, are definitely. Right yeah. So I wanted to yeah. join the military for the experience in the healthcare field to really get an idea of what I wanted to do, and then have funding to be able to get the training. So after New York, I lived there for almost two years. I moved to Petaluma, California, and that's where I trained to become a health services technician and an EMT. So you can look it up, but a health services technician in the Coast Guard is like a mix of nursing and PA. You could be on a Mm -hmm. ship where you are really in charge of caring for the whole crew as like a two-person team, or at least at the time you could be, or you could be at a large clinic and kind of assisting a physician. And so my first job was in Charleston, South Carolina on a Coast Guard cutter, a 378. I don't even think they have 378s anymore. But um, it was me and a chief. And we cared for our 130, 150 crew member ship, as well as anyone mm-hmm. else that came on board. Um, and it was such an, a rich opportunity. I had got so much experience caring for um, for the, the crew members, but also people that we kind of picked up along the way who were fleeing persecution, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. And I got to have opportunities to see that like I work well in high stress environments. Um, I got to see that um, I love healthcare and I'm good at it. And I love doing things that challenge me while at that job. I met my husband. It's such a really crazy random story. I won't go all the way into it, but pretty much I saw him and I knew that was going to be my husband. Did he think the same? When he, when, yes. <laughs> I mean, he, he was going to say that, that now today. Cause, <laughs> cause y'all been married for a hot minute or <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't see me when I saw him. But when I saw him, ah. something, I have no idea. It was super, supernatural. But I was like, I said to this lady, I remember this girl that I used to hang out with. I was like, hi, it's going to be my husband. And I have no idea why I think that. <laughs> and we're not supposed to be dating. So um, <laughs> long story short, we ended up having mutual friends and uh, meeting each other and hanging out. And it was like instantaneous. I had another guy that I was kind of like trying to make things work with at the time and <laughs> ended up, you know, it, it was already not working, <laughs> but it 
it was definitely not working. <laughs> it was definitely not working. Right? It was done. <laughs> so did with both of you being in the Coast Guard, did you think that you would have um, kind of this international focus to your relationship? Like, did you basically anticipate you'd be living abroad or... No. Or was it? Yeah. So one of my greatest disappointments about joining the Coast Guard was that it had mainly just U.S. based bases. It's not like the Navy or the Army that had a lot of these overseas. And so that was really my biggest concern during the military that I wasn't going to be able to travel anymore. And I knew from a young age that I always wanted to live internationally. I wanted to live cross-culturally. I wanted to be having these very rich um, diverse experiences for the rest of my life. And I didn't, didn't want to go and just live in a community that felt like I could just settle into. I, and my husband says, Angelica, you always choose the hardest paths. And I do, I guess, because it just, I don't know, it's always more rich. I feel like. So when we met, it was very funny. We had lots of conversations and my husband had never lived outside the U S never even, I don't think traveled outside Mm. the U S except for maybe Cancun for like, um, high school graduation. And so when I met him, I explained to him all my experiences and he was just like, I like you, but I don't know about any of this cultural stuff that you're talking about. (laughs) And it was, it's so funny, Amanda, the way that one, he has changed, but obviously our lives have melded. But I remember having conversations with him about the small streets in Italy and how people drove small cars and things like that. And he used to be like, nobody has pickup trucks. And it's like, no love. Like the the streets are not suitable for pickup trucks. Like, I mean, I can't blame him. He grew up in the yes, South. Yes, like so his context was so, totally the South. <laughs> right. He, he totally different he cars He Coca-Cola here. every day and made sweet tea. And I was like, but honestly, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because I realized, I think part of the attraction and the, the way that has worked for us is that he was a part of the American culture that I never had experienced before. And for That's him, fair. he always was attracted to Black women. But like I provided a different perspective on life that he had never heard before. And I think I had a comfort with him not being typical American, right? Like he, though he grew up in the South, he was not a Texan necessarily. He wasn't, you know, from Alabama and had this like Alabama culture. He was a completely different thing, but he still had these little essences of America that I had never experienced. And so it was like being with an international person for me. But I told him, I said, I want to eventually be a doctor who works overseas. I want to be living, honestly, in some rural place that really needs a doctor. And I have no intentions of living in suburban America. And he was just like, I think he was like, okay. Because for him, it was like a, like a, not a reality. So he was just like, whatever, you can say whatever right. you'd like. Like, he'd never even been overseas, really. So for me to say that was kind of like, I don't know what that really means, but okay, we can agree to that. And yeah. so we were married in Charleston. I we ended up I ended up transitioning out of that job that I was in. Um, I went to Miami, and so we lived apart for the first year of marriage. He lived in Charleston. I lived in my in Miami, and then I got out so I could go to school full time to become a physician. I was studying, so I went and I was studying just health sciences at a local community college. But I knew that I wanted to go into medicine and go into healthcare, and so I got out so I could do that full time. I was in the reserves, but I was not Monday through Friday at in the military. And so I did that for a good bit of time, like a year in Charleston. And then we moved to Buffalo, New York. And in Buffalo, New York is really where my life took this major trajectory. Like from now on, when I tell you the story, it's, you're going to see like, oh my gosh, wow. Like I see how this is all kind of rolled out. So we went from Charleston, we moved to Buffalo. In Buffalo, I enrolled in biomedical science as undergrad with the intention of applying to medical school. And Mm -hmm. my whole world was about studying 
to become a physician. And I eventually realized I wanted to work in obstetrics and gynecology. I loved working with women. Mm -hmm. Women had more rich stories that they wanted to tell. They were really looking to engage with their provider. They were looking for just something different than what I saw the men look for. Men were like, fix me up and let me go back out. Like, I don't care to have a conversation with you. Give me <laughs> right. the meds, put the bandage on it, be gone. <laughs> right. Let's go. Right. Yeah. But I realized I wanted to really be a part of the life of the people that I was caring for. And so I began volunteering with this refugee organization with women mm-hmm. having either their first birth or a high risk pregnancy in the U.S. They also did work with um, lower income black women in Buffalo. And so I had two, two mentees at the time. But my relationship that I built with my my first mentee, a Somali woman, has really just been, I mean, we we were laughing and joking last week. And that was in 2010 that her and I met. But it showed me, I one, I want to work, work cross-culturally as a healthcare provider, for sure. I want to uh, be in close relationship with the people that I'm supporting and I'm caring for. And I don't want this like, you come in, I see you for 15 minutes and you leave. So right before I'm going into my fourth year of undergrad, getting ready to take the MCAT. Like I said, I had been hustling, volunteering at a cancer institute. Um, just, I mean, all the things to get yeah. into medical school. I'm sitting in Starbucks, getting ready to um, study for final exams. And my husband calls me and he says, Angelica, we have to move. And I said, uh, okay. And he said, well, let me give you a list of the places. He said, Maine, Michigan, uh, these very, very oh. cold, crazy places. That's all I hear is cold. cold. <laughs> That's all I'm hearing. And we had moved to Buffalo <laughs> for the cold because he had never seen snow and he wanted to be in snow. But I'm like, after this, boo, we're done. Like, <laughs> So I said, something okay. inside me said, ask him to have the guy. So it's called a detailer who tells you these lists of these places that you can go. I said, ask him to look again and see if he sees another place. And he calls me right back and says, oh, he didn't scroll up and he saw Puerto Rico. And I was like, <laughs> you were like, Yes, sir. And I said, we'll go. And I battled back and forth about whether or not to stay to finish my my degree and to actually you know, apply to medical schools and everything because I had been investing so much into it. But also, Amanda, during this time, I was under so much extreme stress, like hair falling out, everything because of the way I was trying to get to this goal that I thought I was supposed to do. But something had been telling me that I needed to take my hands off and give it a moment. And so we moved to Puerto Rico and I dropped my plans for completing my degree in that four year window of time. And we came to Puerto Rico for the first time and my world was changed. 100% 180. I didn't want to have kids for many years. I thought because it was going to derail my plans of getting into the field and getting out there and doing what I wanted to do, all of these things. And I began to meet women here who were having children, raising families, doing careers in their own unique way. I mean, women running restaurants, doing pop-up art shows, surfing in their pregnancies. And I was like, I can do, I can do motherhood if I can do it in this way, if I can do it the way that I want to do it. Because you guys are in Puerto Rico right now. And so for people who are listening in and, 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 and may not have made the connection, you know, you guys moved full-time to Puerto Rico six months ago. Mm-hmm. Is that yes. correct? So I'm understanding that there was there was clearly a plan that after you left the first time that you would come back, come back. Yeah. How long were you in Puerto Rico the first time you came? Three years. And I can tell you, I can't say there was a plan when I left to come back. Interesting. Okay. It was hard the first time living here. It was very difficult. Puerto Rico is, I like to try and say to people, Puerto Rico, I love it. I'm living here permanently. Like we just purchased a home, like you were saying, but Puerto Rico is not Hawaii. It is not like... 
Whole Foods down the street and resorts and things like that. At least not on the side that I live on. There's no Whole Foods in Puerto Rico. I don't believe at all. But there's definitely no Whole Foods where I live. I mean, it's very difficult for me to find an intramural sports league for my kids. Um, it's not. It's not Hawaii. It's it's. I mean, honestly, I have found there's way more amenities and options for doing things on Guam than there are here in Puerto Rico. And so, no, when I lived here the first time, the intention was not to just come right back. So we lived here for three years. I had this really life-changing experience. I decided to have my first daughter here. And through that experience, I realized how critical the need for comprehensive, holistic care was. And I began to realize, I already knew I wanted a midwife. I couldn't find my midwife when I was here the first time. I Mm. was looking for certain things when I interviewed that I could not find. And I realized Ah, there are expats like myself living here or third culture families living here who are looking for something that doesn't exist yet. And I think I can offer that thing, but I didn't know it at the time. I just remember being here and feeling like I can't find my midwife. You know, it's a shame that, you know, we have a 50% C-section rate here that um, Mm. women have 15 minutes with their doctor. They have no idea what's happening in their pregnancy. They don't even know their actual due date because physicians keep it a secret They have Mm. super high induction rates. Part of the reason why they keep their due dates a secret so that they can say you're overdue and induce um, extreme corruption in in areas. And I was just like, for me, again, I left and I was like, well, that was a hard place to live. I I see there's a great need here. (laughs) And I loved it. I'm glad I had my first daughter here. Literally with her birth, I was reborn. And my gears began to shift of like, where is my place in the world? And where is my space? I didn't know it was here in Puerto Rico at first. We moved to Guam. Go ahead. And that's where I was going to go because I I think you've opened up, I think, a very interesting conversation. So I'm curious to hear about your experiences in Guam. And then I do want to talk a little bit, especially someone who's an American who has lived in the U.S., kind of more about the differences between living in either of these territories versus what we think about, right? And I I love that you used Hawaii as an example because that's probably where a lot of people are going. So let's talk about Guam and then backtrack a little bit. Yeah. So I moved to Guam after three years of being in Puerto Rico. And I had my second daughter on Guam with midwives out of the hospital. Um, They were nurse midwives and they didn't offer home birth. And I wanted home birth. And I, but I had a wonderful experience at my, with my birth on Guam. But with my daughter and my second daughter's birth, I realized, ah, I wanted to be a midwife. And I wanted to, I've been always wanting to be a midwife and providing clients and families with care that is comprehensive that is individualized and it's out of the hospital system and really is empowering because that is not what is the standard here. At least it was not at the time. It's still very much not the standard. But on Guam, I realized they may not have midwives providing home birth services, but they are providing this extra level of care and this intention Mm -hmm. that is not available in Puerto Rico. And I felt Mm -hmm. like Puerto Rico kept calling me. After that, Puerto Rico was calling me home. Every couple of Weeks or months, I would get an email through my website of somebody saying, hey, I'm planning to give birth in Puerto Rico. How can I find a midwife? How can I find a provider? How can I avoid you know, a C-section? How can I do this? And I felt like I couldn't get away from it. And it was not like I had any hard feelings for Puerto Rico, but I didn't have an affinity to come back. I didn't know that that was where I was being called to. And there's no licensure for midwives here in Puerto Rico. So um, mm. you can't easily access labs, you know, like ordering labs for your clients or ultrasounds or the medications yeah. you need. So on Guam, I began to feel that calling of Puerto Rico calling me back. And I had prayed like that if I ever lived in the States and I had the opportunity to go to midwifery school, I wanted to go to the school that was outside of Seattle 
where I could get a master's degree. So look, I had been trying to get my bachelor's to go on to, you know, medical school. Yeah. And now I'm like, don't even have a bachelor's degree. I invested three <laughs> crazy years and now I've lived overseas twice, had two kids. One of my biggest dreams was like, <laughs> can I just get my degree? And there's only one university in the United States that offers you the opportunity to become a midwife at the same time as getting a master's degree in midwife in, in midwifery, excuse me. You can get or you can get associate's degrees and become a midwife. There's a the university yeah. that you can get a master's degree once you've already been a midwife and get a midwifery. But the university I went to was the only one that allowed you to do the same at the same time and specialize in out of hospital birth. And that's what I wanted to oh. do. By that time, I was very aware of the statistics for giving birth in the hospital, giving birth with a physician. And I realized, you know, not only if I became a physician, would I be kind of a part of this system, but it would be very difficult to be outside of that system, providing these longer visits for my clients, you know, not really wanting to induce when I don't think it's completely necessary, offering clients a vaginal birth after cesarean, because that's not the culture of the other people in your peer group. And in medicine and healthcare, yeah. a lot of what a provider does is dictated by their peers in their community and the people that they practice mm. with. So if you have rights or privileges at a hospital, generally you have to abide by similar practices because you're not right. always on call. Sometimes they're on call. So you can't decide that, hey, I'm taking a VBAC client, but so-and-so doesn't take VBACs or I'm going to allow this client to labor for this extended, extended period of time where I know the next person taking over with me doesn't feel comfortable. You have to kind of abide. And also, yeah. you know, you have peer review and such where they critique your practice. And so I realized yeah. that if I went into healthcare, at least at that time as a physician, I wouldn't be supported in the way that I wanted to practice. And I realized with certified professional midwifery, who, where we practice out of the hospital autonomously, that would be honored and it would and it would be backed up by evidence. And the evidence shows that midwifery care for low-risk women is just as safe, if not safer than birthing in the hospital. And that's particularly true for black women. And gotcha. I mean, same thing here in Puerto Rico. Like I said, we have a 50% C-section rate. So after leaving Guam, we wanted to just come back to Puerto Rico, right? I said, I felt the island calling me and I didn't really want to, it was about the time where, you know, there's a lot of political craziness in the U S and I didn't yeah. want to bring my children back to mainland U S. I was like, I want my kids to grow up <laughs> overseas. Yeah. This is like the running theme in like half of the podcast. I know, I like, I'm just not ready to bring that. Like, I'm not ready to bring my kids yes, back. Yes, I have heard. <laughs> Until they're older. Yes, yeah. I'm like, they need more time to develop into who they are before they start dealing yeah. with all of this. And so we put it at the top of our list, Puerto Rico. And the way that priorities work for transfer in the military, there's kind of like, based on where you were stationed and the job that the person was doing, you get ranks. Well, my husband was yeah. essentially at the top of being able to choose where he wanted to go. So we were like, bet we're going back to Puerto Rico. Yes. Like, you know, I don't know when I'll be a midwife, but you know, I'll be able to at least raise my kids here in this environment and give them this rich cultural experience and have them mold and shape into who they're supposed to be before going back to the States. Well, Amanda, we put it at the top of our list and we did not get it. Right. And I was devastated, devastated. I was like, I don't want to go back to the States. And what it said, though, was that we were going to Seattle. And I think I mentioned right. it was, I had prayed that if I ever ended up in the States, I never thought I would. You wanted to be? Yeah, I wanted to go. <laughs> You'd to, want to be in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't remember at the time, but I was over at a friend's house and I was telling her, you know, lamenting about having to go back to the States and then also going to the West Coast in Seattle where it's cold and dark and rainy. I'm like, I'm an island girl now. I don't live in the cold. And she right. just reminded me of that, that dream that I had. And I was literally like flabbergasted. I couldn't... Re- couldn't realize that I was being led on this path to, to becoming a midwife. You know, let me, let me hark back to a question I, I mentioned is, is that you 
you touched on. For people who haven't lived on either island mm -hmm. or a set of islands, what is the like? What is the difference? I think for Americans who are living in Guam or living in Puerto Rico versus Americans who are mainland, yeah. right? So a lot of people don't even realize that these folks also have American passports. Yes. That's a whole nother story. Yes. But but you mentioned that you know Puerto Rico is not Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's what's different just in general? So Puerto Rico is very much its own country when I think of it culturally. Obviously, majority of everyone is speaking Spanish. Everyone, there are many people who also speak English, but Spanish is predominantly yeah, what you're seeing signs in when you go to government agencies, Spanish. You can find translations of things, but that's the exception. That's not, you shouldn't expect when you go places to find things in Spanish or in, in English. Yeah, in English. When you go to the grocery stores, the 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 food is kind of tailored to the Puerto Rican Spanish cultural um, yeah. foods, right? Like obviously yeah. you can find grocery stores that are very quote Americanized or where the gringos go, but generally you're going, you're finding foods that are resonating with the Caribbean Puerto Rican diaspora of foods. And so yeah. um, that the infrastructure, the the infrastructure is, is quite difficult, especially if you're not in the Metro area, which is San Juan. Like I live very yeah. West. And so the hospitals are, it's, you go, you, you go to the hospital for an emergency and we think, you know, it's hard in the States. You could go there and wait for four or six hours. I know someone who was <laughs> right. having a loss and literally sat and bled in the, in a gurney without any linens on it in the hallway, because that's mm. just how things are here. Um, when you call an ambulance, it may not come for 30 minutes, an hour. Like it's not dependable. Like it is in the States. Same thing with, you know, law enforcement and such. There is corruption and every every aspect and not always super overt, but like I'm trying to open a store here and um, the bureaucracy and the level of just, I would say theft, but there's, they're asking for payment at every point for things that don't make any sense. And to get a simple thing notarized, like I have to get a stamp and then it's like this and like that. It's not very straightforward. So it's a very difficult, it's not streamlined. People joke about like not wanting to go to the DMV. It's, the DMV is like the DMV in the States is like going to the doctor here. When you go to the doctor, you don't get an appointment time. You go in the morning and you wait outside for hours yeah. until you get right. called in. So, you know, things like that are very different. We're on Guam. It's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. You make an appointment with a doctor, just like you would on the mainland for the most part. And you call for EMS and it's pretty efficient to get EMS services. The grocery stores are tailored obviously to a more Asian Pacific yeah. Island uh, food, but foods, but you know, they're still very much in every grocery store, some of the common things you would see. And I remember finding that so strange being so far from the mainland United States and seeing so more, so many more normal things or like things that were common to me, not normal, common things to me that I'd seen in the U S mm -hmm. or mainland that you don't see here. And mm -hmm. intramural sports are a big thing on Guam. Even adults are playing professional soccer on Guam. Like in here, like they do have it, but it's not in every town very easily in basketball teams. Like there are some, but when we think about what we, like someone who has an eight-year-old kid in the States can just go to their town and find out like, when are the intramural sports for the, the year and sign them up. Right. It's not so straightforward here <laughs> like that. Like you might have to go on Facebook to find a group and then they'll tell you about this. And then it's just, not the same in that way. And then on Guam, 
it's much more Americanized, if I could say that. And that might be because gotcha. there is a, a large military population. I think it's about 10% of the population is military on Guam. Gotcha. It's it's super funny. I think when we compare places that we've lived and traveled, I you know, even using Italy as an example that we were talking about earlier, I generally I hate group travel, but I was there for some professional. I hate anyway. <laughs> I think everyone, anyone who ever listens to me knows how much I hate travel. I heard travel. you. You were talking on your, one of your last ones. I, I, I say it on, said, I I say like it on every, on every episode. I'm always like, I hate travel. <laughs> I, I mean, there's some exceptions, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. But when I was going to Italy, I remember one of the challenges, I think out of that group, one person had traveled internationally before. Mm. Right. And, and then there was also some age discrepancy. And so I just remember how people were so shocked how certain things ran in Italy because they'd all grown up in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I, I know what the correlation was. We're going to a, a Western, quote, European country. Really, it's a Mediterranean, which is a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. And they thought to themselves, OK, stuff runs on time in the U.S. and all this stuff happens. And nah, we were waiting for a bus for two hours. Like it said it was going to come at 11. And it didn't come till one. And no, he wasn't apologetic. And no, he gave no explanation. And and people didn't necessarily necessarily stand in queues or in lines for things. And things were very robust. Mm-hmm. And and I just kept telling one of the, the women that you're coming from an American perspective and you've automatically transferred exactly. your- what you thought. And so I could see there being some transfer- transferring with Puerto Rico, especially when you get out of whatever caters to tourists is one thing, but you're talking about living in these communities. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that was what was hard for me the first time is because I, I didn't, because I knew that Puerto Rico was a U.S. territory or um, part of the United States, I, I didn't give it the space like I would have if I was traveling to Italy or Japan. So I gotcha. got here and thinking, I'm going to see some things that kind of remind me of the mainland. It's going to feel maybe more, maybe like a Hawaii. I've never lived in Hawaii, but I thought like that, that was where the difficulty came. So that was my fault is kind of transcribing these ideas onto the place before giving it an opportunity, something I typically don't do. But I did that not realizing it. But obviously, I'm back here again. And it's where I'm raising my children and my children are bilingual in Spanish and stuff. So there's clearly something that drew me back aside from the work, but it's such a beautiful culture and community and this, the family familial importance and the beautiful beaches and the food it's it's such a beautiful place to raise a family i feel like it is puerto rican people have their arms wide open and that they are accepting generally to new people and my neighbor i live out in just a normal puerto rican community and my neighbors are there for us if we need anything and um so though it's not what i expected i guess when i came here and it's still very difficult in many ways i at this moment, don't, um, don't have regrets about living here. I think it's a really wonderful place to live. I think, um, it has a lot to offer that you don't see at face value or you, you have to spend some time to see. Did both you or your husband speak Spanish prior to coming? My husband took Spanish in high school. I took French in high school. And he acted like when we lived here the first time, he didn't remember a lick of Spanish from high school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that may have been true. Like, you say, yeah, you may have been true. Did, is there any Spanish between the two of y'all right now? Oh, see, yes, now. My husband actually has been really intentional now about this time building his fluency. And it's funny, Amanda, my kids are both fluent. 
I was like, did you prep them for? I did. Okay. And not even knowing we were coming back. But like I said, the island kept calling me back and something in the back of my head said, prepare your kids for living here. And so when we moved to Seattle, I immediately enrolled into an immersion school and they went to immersion school. And then for um, first grade and second grade, a kindergarten, first grade, second grade for my youngest or my older one, she was in a Spanish program where, and she was admitted as a native speaker because she was so fluent. So <laughs> me, so maybe the, the, the dad's like little bit of high school Spanish kind of went through the gene pool and just, <laughs> it's, it's done. I don't know. I mean, when she lived here as a baby, she was born here as a baby. She was being spoken to in Spanish. Spanish. Frequently. Okay. And then I kept up with it when we left as much as I knew. And then when she got to formal <laughs> schooling, she was immersed in it Take all it the on. time. Yeah. It's so cute. Like, it's so funny watching kids like pick up languages and then parents are just like, I don't, sometimes I have to ask the neighbor because they, uh-huh. they, I had a parent like that who said, this kid's fluent in Japanese. I'm still working my way through. <laughs> they would ask the neighbor. <laughs> what did she just say? Um, so I, how do you think then, I guess for you as a family, how do you think your child rearing and the way you guys are doing life has been impacted by maybe the way you grew up, obviously, in the spaces you've been in, and maybe mm-hmm. even your husband, because your husband also grew up highly mobile. Mm-hmm. So do you see sort of that transferring or translating down to how you guys parent? Yes, I would say from the ground up. Immediately, the only reason why I became a parent was living here in Puerto Rico and seeing <laughs> that you could live this different kind of life. Yeah. And then also, my parents never really encouraged bilingualism or multilingualism. And it's not a regret that I have that I don't speak another language fluently, but I find that there is a difference in the experience that you have when you can speak to people in their heart language. Yeah. And that was important to, be, to me for my children to have that ability. And so I thought if I'm going to bring my kids here and I'm going to raise them here, they should speak the language yeah. and they should be able to communicate and get along and, you know, meet children and understand things in a deep, way. Like if this is going to be their home, it's going to be their home. So that was like the first thing. And then, um, just raising global citizens, raising children who are aware that they're aware of who they are, comfortable in who they are, but also comfortable in accepting and, 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 uh, understanding people for who they are and being able to navigate the world with that confidence and with that, uh, open-handedness, I guess I should say. Yeah. So, and that I think I don't, I don't think I would have uh, found as valuable if I hadn't had my own TCK upbringing. So yes, it's a crucial part. And then also living what I call kind of like a one part life or a very simple and slow life. So we live here on the West and that was intentional because it's more laid back. It's not a hustle and bustle culture. Uh, there's much more of a focus on stopping and having a conversation with people. It's, I mean, funny enough, we were trying to, we left church this weekend and then I needed to like go get food and stuff. And I, or last weekend and I stood in the grocery store cause I was talking to three people each for like 20 minutes. And my husband and my daughters were in the car waiting for me. And they're, when we got back, they're like, where were you? And I said, you know, I saw people like I have to talk. And honestly, that's the life I want though. It feels inconvenient sometimes at the moment. Um, it is what gives the richness to my life, right? It gives the richness to our lives and it builds interconnectedness with people. And I felt like when I lived like in Seattle, uh, I couldn't get that. I d- there was so much focus on making money and paying the bills and 
you know, networking. I love networking, you know, it's yeah. how I, you know, I get along, yeah. but there was so much emphasis on that. There wasn't enough, I think, time to simply be and be mm. with. And that is something that the island is constantly teaching us is how to be and how to be with. And so that's, you know, a richness and something I don't think I would have gotten living in the States. And I would imagine too, for your children, giving kind of the diversity of for the, the average Puerto Rican too, that maybe even for your children, sort of representation, maybe not the same exact representation, but when you sort of think of the racial and the ethnic makeup yes. and, and just the history of, uh, I, I say the Caribbean across the board. I don't think people realize that they've never really traveled and studied just how many different ethnic groups are in these different places so mm-hmm. that even, okay, fine. They may, you know, it's like going back to when you were at the, the school in Italy, right? Okay, fine. It may not be the same exact permutation, but I'm sure they don't necessarily stand out either. No, my right? people many times are like, your kids look Puerto Rican to me. And then my, and, they, and then know, they, they speak Spanish. Spanish and they have no, and, and then they look at me and they're just like, okay, she's probably, she's probably Puerto Rican too. And right. so they hear me not really speaking very good Spanish. Um, so yes, that was also another thing, Amanda, that really drew me back to Puerto Rico and kind of, I even considered like maybe living on Guam, but Guam didn't call to me like Puerto Rico did. But I thought my kids are going to be able to be here. They're just yeah. going to be there's, yeah. there's, and the fact that they are going to be expats in a bit, in a way, gives them the freedom to not necessarily even have to conform to the Puerto Rican culture. They can really create their own identities. And that was probably the most paramount thing for me. I felt like I got that experience. And at this point in our society, I feel like as black or biracial, or even just, I don't know, everyone is having a very hard time being able to just be. And I wanted my children to have that opportunity to just evolve into who it was that they were created to be without so much social pressure and social input. And I think we get that here. And so as we as we get towards the end, I I do want to give you a few moments just to even speak a little bit about the work that you are doing. I like here's the thing. If anybody follows you, I mean, you're on Instagram, you're on social media, you've got a great website. I feel like I've I mean, I've been following it for years, so I know what you do. But what do you what do you as far as your work as a and and, and here's the funny things. Since the last time I spoke to you, you had not been you had not completed your program. So you have yes. completed your program. So what are you <laughs> what are you doing in terms of your brand and 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 with childbirth and child rearing and all the wellness yeah. and health around that. <laughs> yeah. And so over the years, like since you've known me, it has kind of grown. Uh, so now I did, I graduated from my program. I have a master's degree in midwifery, master of science in midwifery. I specialize in botanical medicine for midwifery care. So that means mm-hmm. I can provide herbal recommendations and lifestyle things for, you know, issues related to gynecological health, fertility, um, breastfeeding, postpartum healing, things like that. Mm. And then because I've been working with growing families for many, many years, and I was a doula and childbirth educator, lactation counselor, I've kind of incorporated all of that into my current practice, which is soul midwifery and wellness. And so I offer home birth services like midwifery care. So you come in for your normal prenatal visits and, you know, we listen to baby and check the blood pressure, all of those things and prepare for the home birth. But then I do private botanical medicine consultations where family or women can come and talk about what they're going through and get recommendations. My goal is really to help put healthcare back into the hands of women that you Mm -hmm. don't feel like you have to keep going to the hospital and sitting for two hours to get, you know, a trite two sentence answer from your doctor to really help understand what their body is experiencing and um, find resources for self-healing 
And then if you need to go to the, to the doctor, of course, go, right? Yeah. And then the third arm of what I'm doing are perinatal wellness sessions. And so these are virtual or in-person sessions where I sit one-on-one with women. I love, love working with um, women living overseas because yeah. that's usually where, especially expats, expats, because you usually have a hard time finding information or understanding how your context will relate in this new culture and, you know, community. And so I love helping families in that situation determine, you know, whether or not you want a doctor or a midwife, or how do you understand what tests are coming up? And um, if you're experiencing miscarriage or loss, you could be very, feel very isolated living overseas. Mm -hmm. You know, if you live kind of rurally, um, you may not have access easily to a support group or something like that, or say you're interested in becoming a doula or a midwife, you live here, um, you live on the mainland US and you're interested in that. So mm-hmm. that's really what perinatal wellness sessions are for. It's really a customized curated one-on-one sessions where I help women process different seasons of life that they're going through. And so we do individuals, but we also do like groups of three. And mm-hmm. I've had the privilege of working right now with um, women in Asia, women here uh, on the mainland. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm really open to um, extending that. And then I'll also be opening a store, a storefront. And there we're going <laughs> to... And and there's more. Okay. No, well, because here you can't easily access... There's yeah. no maternity clothing stores, none right. on the side of the island. Getting holistic menstrual supplies, not that... Yeah. Just go sit down somewhere. They don't have yeah. that. Yeah. Um, supplements, organic bulk teas and herbs, like things, you know, nettles, chamomile, things that, you know, we're really becoming aware of nowadays that people want to use. You can't find that here. So everything is shipped from the mainland. So um, creating a space where you can easily access those things, but then also have access to childbirth classes, breastfeeding classes, um, support groups, talking about birth experiences here. So many women have had traumatic birth experiences here and don't realize that, um, it's okay to share and really other people want to hear them. So they know how to better prepare and, you know, understand their options. So yeah, that's what I do. And, you know, I, I do this with everyone. And so with your contact information, your website, whatnot, we'll make that, make sure that's in the show notes. Okay. Thank Cause you. you've, you've got a, you got a great offer coming up. And honestly, we, we do have a lot of women who have who listen in and, People are in various stages of life. I know this because we surveyed folks. <laughs> and so I, you know, I don't know. Actually, I'm pretty sure we may not always talk about giving birth abroad as much mm-hmm. and how to empower, you know, couples and families who mm-hmm. are maybe doing it for the first time or even just, you know, even if it's your third child, it might be your first child in that country that you're yes. you're giving birth in, right? Yes. So so I, I will say over the years, I've had the most interesting conversations <laughs> around pregnancy and childbirth. And so I think that your services and, and what you offer and your wisdom is is very much needed. And so, thank you, man. So we we caught up. It took like four years, four years, three, four. I don't even know because people move. It's like three years. You had just moved to Seattle. So maybe is that three years? Four years. Four years. I was in Seattle okay. for four years. Okay, so maybe it's been it's been a minute since we talked. So I am so glad you you hopped on the podcast with me. And man, you managed to condense your story <laughs> in less than that. You, I'm you got sorry, it. I was speaking you got, so fast. No, I don't want to listen to this on like half speed. <laughs> no, you got you got it all in. I mean, there was stuff that I didn't know. So I'm I'm just excited that you were willing to come on and tell your story. So thank you so much for hanging out with me. Amanda, thank you for having me. And thank you for creating the Black Expat. This is a space that 
is so needed. And we even, you know, we're talking about the stories that are within the stories that we're not hearing about, you know, and I think you are touching on something that is, I know going to just really enrich the lives of people all over the world who don't, don't hear themselves, you know, they're not seeing themselves, but the black expat is amplifying those voices. And so I'm really excited for what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. I always, you know, it's really weird when people say nice things about you. It's like, (laughs) They say, tell, give people their flowers before it's the funeral, right? But it's like, it's really yes. weird to be like, okay, thank you. Like, yes, you know, but, accept but, your flowers. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter, or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.